Hi everyone, this is Shreya. This is a special episode because it marks the first episode that where we are partnering with ACP, the American College of Physicians, for CME credit. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes. It's a pretty strong episode in my very humble and biased opinion. So if you're in training, send this episode to your attending or someone else who could benefit from this means of continuing medical education. And with that, cue the intro. This is Dr. Marty Fried, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Evan Harmon. This is the Core I Am Five Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we're discussing stress testing and coronary CTA part two. We had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Pam Douglas for this episode, professor of cardiology at Duke. She has many research grants, including from the NIH, as well as HeartFlow. She is the former president of both American College of Cardiology and American Society of Echocardiography. Kind of a big deal. I think we covered a lot of ground. And that might be the understatement of the decade. So this is part two of our coronary diagnostics series. The last Five Pearl episode focused on stress testing and all the various flavors thereof. So by all means, we invite you to take a listen to that. Besides Dr. Douglas, you'll hear from Dr. Greg Katz, who's an NYU cardiologist, been on a few of our episodes before, including troponins and stress testing. Later on in the episode, you'll hear from our peer reviewer, Dr. Ishida Devetti, also from NYU. And again, we are joined by our new friend of the pod, Dr. Evan Harmon from University of Virginia. Hey, great to be back, guys. And I think you'll agree that our listeners would be just shocked and appalled if they knew the technological hurdles I had to overcome to make this podcast work. It turns out the old Lenovo ThinkPad wasn't doing me any favors. <laughs> I didn't realize we still had bicycle-powered laptops until uh, Evan uh, helped us with this episode. But, um, let's get started on the questions we'll be covering. Remember to test yourself after each of the five pearls. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, Overview of Functional versus Anatomical Testing What are the differences between functional stress test and anatomical test? And what are examples of each? Pearl 2, Coronary Calcium Scoring What information does a coronary calcium score give you? And what's its role in diagnosing and managing coronary artery disease? Pearl 3, Stress Test versus Coronary CT Angiograms, or CTAs. What information can a coronary CTA provide that a functional stress can't? And is there data to support the use of one modality over the other? Pearl 4, Limitations of Coronary CTA. In which patients should we avoid a coronary CTA, and what challenges do physicians face in obtaining coronary CTAs for our patients? Pearl 5, Interpreting Coronary CTAs. What do we do with the information obtained with a coronary CTA? And how do we communicate those results to our patients? So guys, as you know, I've done a ton of reading about stress testing recently for these episodes, and I think I've finally identified an underappreciated concept that a lot of us don't fully appreciate. Uh, yeah, lay it on us, Bob. So when we think about stress tests, like all the different iterations of stress tests that we labored through last episode, they're actually only half the story when it comes to diagnostic tests to risk stratify for coronary artery disease. Wait, you gotta be kidding me. There's more? Yes, absolutely. And it turns out a whole episode's worth more. There's actually two broad categories for coronary disease testing, functional tests and anatomical tests. Functional tests are what we talked about in the last episode, studies like exercise EKG, stress echoes, and nuclear tests. But there's this whole other category of testing, anatomical tests. 
Oh, man, I feel the stress bombs are coming. (laughs) (laughs) For sure, for sure. But maybe it'd be helpful to actually contrast the two types of testing. So if I'm remembering right about what I took away from the functional test episode, functional stress tests tell us about the physiological consequence of an obstruction, right? So a patient undergoes a stressor, and then this test helps me understand, is there ischemia, i.e., is there EKG changes or wall motion abnormalities? But sounds like these functional stress tests might not be the complete picture. The stress test, you just have a no ischemia, but there could be, you know, the the iceberg below the surface that you don't know about. And you absolutely visualize that with the CT. As Dr. Douglas points out, these functional stress tests don't tell us about the coronary anatomy of our patient or the amount of plaque burden. Cue the anatomical tests. Typically, we think of these as various types of coronary CT imaging. Right, and we need to be careful about how we use the term coronary CT, which often gets thrown around. Coronary CT is an umbrella term that includes a couple of similar but separate tests, both of which involve running a patient through the CT scanner. Those are coronary artery calcium scoring and coronary CT angiography, or coronary CTA. Right, right. So continuing with this big picture framework, we talked about functional stress testing being only half the story. Are there any downsides to anatomical testing? Right. So while anatomical testing provides us information about a patient's coronary anatomy and plaque burden, they don't give us information if that plaque is actually causing ischemia. It's entirely possible to have a tight lesion, you know, an anatomically tight lesion that does not cause flow disturbance. And in fact, is is quite common. All right. So what I'm hearing from this pearl in terms of coronary artery disease risk stratification testing is that in our arsenal, we have functional tests, classic stress tests, quote unquote, that tell us about ischemia, but not necessarily about structure. And then on the other end, we have anatomical testing like coronary CTs that include calcium scores and coronary CTAs that help us better understand plaque burden, but don't necessarily tell us if that plaque is causing ischemia. But not so fast with that recap, Shrey. Dr. Douglas is quick to remind us that with new technologies such as fractional flow reserve CT, also known as FFRCT, we might actually be able to get both anatomical and functional information. FFRCT is obtained from already acquired CT anatomic images um, through a big data process to model coronary flow, and it actually models um, hemodynamic significance of lesions much as invasive fractional flow reserve does, which is the invasive FFR, fractional flow reserve, is felt to be the gold standard for coronary lesion. All right, so for us non-cardiologists, the invasive FFR that Dr. Douglas is referring to happens in the cath lab. Remember, in the cath lab, you're trying to see the narrowing of a lumen. But during that procedure, cardiologists can use something called fractional flow reserve. It's a special test that tells us the hemodynamic significance of a lesion. And that's all done invasively. So that's the cool thing about FFRCTs. It's actually non-invasive and uses high-quality CT images, puts all those images together, does some crazy math, and gives us actual information about blood flow across lesions. (laughs) That's the sound of my mind being blown. (laughs) We should point out that a major caveat is that some of the FFR technology is proprietary. That means that it's still super expensive. We put it in here for completeness sake, but for the remainder of this episode, we'll focus mainly on coronary artery calcium scoring and coronary CTA, as these are the tests that us internists are more likely to encounter on a day-to-day basis. All right, let's kick off the tour de coronary CT with calcium scoring. 
<laughs> yeah. So, you know, guys, I'm a hospitalist these days and I see coronary calcium ordered from a patient's prior clinic visits, or sometimes it's added on to a coronary CTA. But frankly, I actually really don't know what to do with it. I mean, I'd really love like a who, what, when, where, why rundown on all things coronary calcium scores. Yeah, let's get to the basics here. Coronary calcium generally means advanced atherosclerosis, and it matters. Coronary calcium has been demonstrated over and over again to be independently associated with coronary heart disease in asymptomatic people and poor prognostic factor in those folks who we already know have coronary disease. So the test to detect coronary artery calcification is pretty simple, just a standard non-contrasted chest CT that only takes about 10 to 15 minutes and zooms in on the coronary arteries. Nice. But how do these non-con CTs come up with these coronary calcium scores? In other words, what does the coronary calcium score actually mean? Basically, if there's calcium-laden plaques, its density is measured in Hounsfield units and then multiplied by the area of the lesion. So the computer is really just adding up the total scores of all of the lesions to give us a composite score that reflects a patient's total coronary plaque burden. All right, great. So if the, if the score is telling us in a standardized way the degree of calcium plaque burden, then what scores should worry us more than others? The short answer here is that we should be concerned about anybody with a score greater than zero. To help give you ranges, a lot of studies stratify patients into groups. Usually that's 0 to 100, 101 to 400, and above 400. It's important to realize that the score isn't the only thing we care about. A calcium score of 50 in a 35-year-old man is very different from a calcium score of 50 in an 80-year-old woman. So to get a complete picture of someone's risk of coronary disease, we have to also factor in a patient's age, race, and gender. So to the rescue is a calculator to help us do exactly that, the MESA calculator. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, it's generally thought that anything above the 75th percentile for the age, gender, and race warrants a statin. Yeah, MESA calculators are super important in interpreting a CAG score. And just to build out the differential benefits of statins as a CAG score increases, I want to mention a really awesome 2018 paper published in Jack by Mitchell et al., the authors showed that as CAC score increases, the number needed to treat with a statin drops. So if a patient's CAC score is relatively low, let's say 1 to 100, the number needed to treat with statin is 100 to prevent a patient's first major adverse cardiovascular event. But if that score is greater than 100, then the number needed to treat with a statin drops from 100 all the way down to 12 to prevent that patient's first major cardiovascular event. Nice. Thanks for setting that up. But I'm thinking also about what about the opposite spectrum of the coronary calcium score? So how does a coronary score of zero help us? So a score of zero might actually be the most helpful score of all. There's this really compelling idea coined by Dr. Nasir from Yale, referred to as the quote-unquote power of zero. The TLDR version of this is that patients with a coronary artery calcium score of zero don't need to be put on statin therapy, and statins are not associated with a reduction in major adverse events in this group. This idea of power of zero is super important because a lot of factors for intermediate risk folks. Those that are 5 to 20% 10-year alias CVD risk. Yeah, so there's a lot of factors for that group of people who increase our risk for those patients. So these are things like premature heart disease in a family member or autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis in that patient. All of those things increase the risk, but there's not much that decrease our risk for a patient. There really isn't anything that lets you decrease concern. A CAC score of zero is one of those things. It lets us downgrade a person's risk from intermediate to low risk, and that is really powerful. 
It basically lets us confidently identify previously intermediate risk patients as low risk patients and as such not needing statins. That is what Marty would call a stress bomb. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah, that one was really well deserved. It was such an important point for me too. But let's change gears to how we actually use these calcium scores. Again, putting my hospitalist hat back on, I'm thinking about patients who come in for chest pain and I'm wondering, how do we use calcium scores in that? Calcium score has no role in the evaluation of chest pain. I'm going to repeat that. Calcium scoring has no role in the evaluation of chest pain. All right, then. Yeah, Greg was pretty unequivocal that calcium scoring is only for asymptomatic patients, and for good reason. And it doesn't tell you anything about soft plaque. It doesn't tell you anything about obstruction. It doesn't tell you anything about whether somebody's symptoms are related to coronary disease or not. What Greg is pointing out is that even a calcium score of zero doesn't necessarily mean absence of coronary disease. It just means absence of coronary calcification. Okay. All right. So it's telling me just about the calcium. I get that. But wait, what does Greg mean with this quote unquote soft plaque? What's all the soft plaque business? Basically, plaques with a lot of calcium might actually be more stable compared to these quote-unquote soft plaques, sometimes called thin cap fibroathromas or TICFAs for those in the biz. Unlike the calcium-laden plaques, these soft plaques have thin borders and large lipid cores and are more likely to rupture. Ah, uh, lipid cores, like Twinkies in your LAD. <laughs> or maybe cannolis? Cannolis, cannolis might be a better visual here. Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking more about poached eggs. You know, those are, look super stable and then easily we can rupture on you. Yeah, you guys might have just ruined everybody's brunch, but getting back on track. So while it's rare to have vulnerable plaque without other calcified plaque around, the takeaway is that in a patient with active chest pain, the calcium scoring can miss these so-called soft plaques, which may very well pose a high risk for a patient. Right, right. So in the spirit of high-value care, what then is considered appropriate use of these coronary artery calcium scores? The current appropriate use criteria essentially only recommend calcium scoring and the risk stratification of asymptomatic patients who you're not really sure about their cardiovascular risk or if they may or may not benefit from a statin. And there are a bunch of situations where we find ourselves here, right? These are like the patient who is skeptical about starting a statin despite an ASCBD risk score in the teens. Or maybe that middle-aged patient with a risk score of 5.5 with a family history of premature heart disease. The 2018 AHA-ACC cholesterol management guidelines actually has some concrete examples where this test has really high yield, so we'll link that in the show notes. Right, so calcium scoring is really a clinic tool, not an emergency department tool. We'll get to those in a minute. Last thing, are there any limitations we should know about before we wrap up calcium scoring? For sure. It's worth noting that coronary artery calcium scores might be less helpful in your elderly patients. It's common to have calcification as we age, so it's less useful in differentiating low risk within that population. Another possible limitation that your patients may ask about is the radiation exposure with these scans. On average, they're about 0.9 millisieverts a pop, which is pretty low compared to annual background radiation of about 3 millisieverts. That is definitely handy to know. All right, let me recap what I've learned so far, though. Basically, what I'm understanding is that calcium scoring entails a quick non-con CT that tells us in a standardized way about a patient's coronary calcium. The score helps us in our asymptomatic patient who are intermediate risk for coronary disease, and there's some question about the benefit of statin therapy. Particularly, there's this power of zero coronary calcium score. 
that can actually help us reclassify patients. The caveat, though, is that the score is not as helpful in risk assessment of our elderly patients, say over 70s or 80s, who might already have a lot of calcification just with age. And it's not as helpful in patients with symptoms, i.e. chest pain. Mark this test off the list, aka watch out for those soft plaques. Or Twinkies. Or (laughs) poached eggs. (laughs) Team poached eggs. So let's move on to coronary CT angiograms, which we're going to shorten and refer to as coronary CTAs. Let's make it happen, Captain. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. I feel like I'm seeing more and more patients in clinic who have had a coronary CTA. Often this has gotten done in the emergency department when they presented with chest pain. But I got to be honest, it's not something that I routinely order. Right. Same. So let's break down first what exactly a coronary CTA entails. Again, we're talking about putting the patient through the CT scanner, just like for coronary calcium scoring. The biggest difference here, though, is that the study needs to be gated, meaning synchronized to the EKG. To do this, patients will likely receive a splash of metoprolol to slow the heart rate, a hint of nitroglycerin to dilate the coronary arteries, and a squeeze of IV contrast to visualize and virtually reconstruct the coronary vasculature. So basically, nothing too crazy. It's like easy-baked cooking, right? <laughs> Just add garnish, sprinkle with a generous portion of rosuvastatin. <laughs> yeah, you guys must be hungry. I think the part that I think is really interesting from the little that I've read is how these coronary CTAs are being incorporated into guidelines. Dr. Douglas puts this into perspective for us. The U.S. guidelines differ really dramatically from the European and even more so from the uh, uh, U.K. guidelines. Uh, In the U.S., we say that you should use a stress ECG and uh, unless the patient um, can't exercise, you need to use pharmacologic stressor unless the ECG is uninterpretable. Um, in the UK, you, there, there is no, the guidelines have no role for a stress test in that clinical scenario, hmm. non-zero. Um, and the first test is a CT angiogram. What Dr. Douglas is referencing here is the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, or quote-unquote NICE guidelines in the UK. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Marty. Uh, These guidelines were updated in 2016 to include coronary CTA as the first line evaluation for stable chest pain. This change was influenced in part by the PROMISE trial, and this was a big deal in the coronary CTA world. It was a randomized controlled trial that randomized low to intermediate risk symptomatic patients in a one-to-one fashion to either a functional risk stratification strategy or a coronary CTA. And what the PROMISE trial showed was that there was no difference between the functional stress test group and the coronary CTA group in the primary endpoint, which was a classic mashup of cardiovascular badness after 12 months of follow-up. The real kicker is actually looking at the people who did end up getting a left-to-heart cath. So the people that actually came from the functional stress testing group were significantly more likely to get a cath that showed no obstructive disease. So in other words, you were less likely to get a meaningless cath if you were from the coronary CTA group. Also nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and another compelling study to know is the Scott Heart Trial. As the name implies, this study was conducted in Scotland and looked at patients with chest pain being referred to ambulatory cardiology clinics. Patients were randomized to either a standard care group or a standard care plus coronary CTA group. This study was pretty shocking because it demonstrated a 1.6 absolute reduction in the primary endpoint of cardiovascular heart disease, death, and non-fatal MI in the coronary CTA group. 
This translated into a whopping 40% relative risk reduction. That is certainly nothing to sneeze at. Is that a thing? Do people sneeze at unimpressive trial results? I don't know, Evan. It, it just felt right. All right, <laughs> all right, all right man. <laughs> Wait, but seriously, how could running a patient through a CT scanner alone reduce coronary heart disease death and non-fatal MI by so much? I mean, what are our CT scanners made of in Scotland? Whiskey. Kilts? <laughs> Bagpipes? <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> oh, man, classic. Um, so, subsequent analyses demonstrated that the reduction in the primary endpoint was driven primarily by the reduction in non-fatal MI. But the results were still eye-opening to cardiologists. I mean, why would simply putting a patient through a CT scanner have such a dramatic impact on mortality to MI? That's a great question, Evan, and I'll answer it for you. (laughs) As it turns out, patients in the coronary CTA group were far more likely to be started on evidence-based therapies like aspirin and statins than those in the standard care group. There's something very powerful about being able to see the location and type of coronary plaques for both physicians and patients. It's one thing to say your stress test was positive, and another thing to say, my man, you have plaque, and it is right there. You guys can't see Marty, but he is emphatically pointing directly into his webcam. (laughs) I'm pointing straight at my imaginary patient's RCA, because studies have shown that's the best way to get someone to take their statin. (laughs) Please note, we don't have any evidence to support that claim, but Dr. Douglas does help us put these landmark trials into context. There are very few times when we have a non-invasive test or a diagnostic test that we can directly connect that with an improved outcome. But here we we are able to directly connect by a randomized trial a better outcome. Both of those trials and a few other ones um, uh, clearly showed that use of a CT improved preventive care uh, over use of, of stress testing, and that may well be the mechanism for the benefit. But needless to say, um, when you've got a, a real 40% reduction in hard endpoints, that's that's kind of a hard um, effect to ignore and say you should do stress testing instead of CT. One of the reasons why coronary CTAs might be so useful is that they actually give us information that even a traditional coronary angiography can't. It's a very important limitation of conventional angiography, which you've identified, is that the lumen can be unchanged in spite of a significant plaque burden. And this gets back to the pathophysiologic process of atherosclerosis itself. CTA gives you information that a cath doesn't sometimes. We think of cath as the gold standard, but a cath just tells you what the lumen looks like. And the first thing that happens when you have the process of atherosclerosis is you have positive remodeling, meaning the atherosclerotic plaque grows out from the vessel. It doesn't grow in. It's only when there's a certain amount of plaque burden that it starts to to grow in. And so that might not be picked up on a cat. You can see pretty normal coronaries when somebody still has atherosclerosis. And just as coronary CTAs give us information about disease in the vessel wall, it can also give us information about plaque morphology. The other thing that a CTA does for you is it gives you information about plaque characteristics. There's this idea of the vulnerable plaque being the one that's more likely to rupture. Yeah, that was a nice throwback to Pearl 2 where we talked about the soft plaque tikvas and their puny weak shells and lipid cores. Remember, I like to think of them as Twinkies of the coronary world. You guys, I have not looked at Twinkies or poached eggs the same way after starting (laughs) working on this. Um, But yeah, let's recap um, all things coronary CTA. So 
What I'm hearing here is coronary CTAs are simply gated arterial phase contrast CT studies that allow us to visualize the coronary arteries. And we have randomized trial data that shows not only are they non-inferior to functional stress tests, but they also have the potential to reduce death and non-fatal MIs using coronary CTAs over standard care. Some added benefits to coronary CTA is that it lets us know about atherosclerotic disease that wouldn't get picked up either with a stress test or even with a cath because it, it's not encroaching on the lumen. And coronary CTAs also pick up on plaque morphology. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. All right, guys. After all that, I sort of feel like we're on this hype train for coronary CTAs and it's running full steam ahead. I don't know. I just think we should pump the brakes a little bit. Yeah, honestly, it's starting to feel like the hype level is approaching royal wedding status. (laughs) How dare you drag Harry and Meghan into this? Yeah, that's uh, pretty low, Marty. Pretty low. The next thing you know, Marty's going to be over here taking shots at The Bachelor. I mean, I think we all can agree that Colton ended up being the most vanilla Bachelor since season 18's Juan Pablo, and Rachel (laughs) was probably the best character in franchise history. But listen, I can see I've hit a nerve here. All Mm -hmm. I'm saying is that we should note that coronary CTA isn't a great choice in all patients. Yeah, I mean, okay, preach on, Marty. It's okay. I think getting into situations where coronary CTAs might not be a good choice actually can help us talk about the elephant in the room. I know a lot of people are probably wondering, hmm, how do I choose between a functional stress test and an anatomical test for a patient? Spoiler alert, there isn't a right answer, but perhaps knowing which scenarios to avoid coronary CTAs can steer us in the direction of what times we should maybe be ordering functional tests more. Well, the first big group of patients we should mention are those with a history of revascularization, and for a couple reasons. First, functional stress testing can give you an idea about myocardial viability, which may be important if future interventions are being considered. Second, for those who have had stents placed in the past, it's important to know that coronary stents can create an imaging artifact, which can make the image pretty difficult to interpret. Another important point to remember is that images obtained during coronary CT are obtained during coronary filling, right? We remember this occurs during diastole. This is why we give that splash from metoprolol, or calcium channel blockers if beta blockers are contraindicated. It's to reduce heart rate and lengthen diastole. So patients have to be able to tolerate metoprolol, and truthfully, it's a bit more than just a splash. It can sometimes be as much as 150 milligrams of oral metope. And for the same reason of getting good images in diastole, we run into issues when we have patients who have tachycardia that we can't control. 
or say people with irregular rhythms. And depending on your hospital's radiology policy, things like ventricular ectopy or even AFib can interfere with getting the images that we actually want. And finally, despite what the Got Milk commercials might have you believe, calcium is a bad thing, at least when it comes to coronary CTA. Wait, do they even make Got Milk commercials anymore? (laughs) Unfortunately, they don't. I wish they did. But here we're talking about coronary calcifications. And as it turns out, calcium deposits have attenuation on CT scans that can approach the density of metal. So that means the greater the calcium deposition, the lower the diagnostic yield of coronary CTA. And for this reason, we usually avoid coronary CTA in our elderly patients and Megatron because his heart is made of steel. Get it, guys? (laughs) Because he's a robot. Uh, Oh, boy. I thank you for explaining that one. Um, We also tend to avoid uh, coronary CTAs in extremely obese patients. So BMI is greater than 40. That can actually alter the images simply because of the tissue density alone. The last and probably the biggest barrier to coronary CTAs is probably the patient's insurance company and prior authorizations. I know you guys take care of some high-risk populations that can be underinsured or even uninsured, and that's who we typically take care of here at UVA as well, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate to that. Um, And so in these patients, you may have to face the frustrating reality that coronary CTA was never an option in the first place. Right. I mean, hopefully as that already robust data for coronary CTA continues to grow, that will become less of an issue. But like bachelors and bachelorettes yet to find love, I dream. <laughs> <laughs> I hope coronary CTAs have a better chance of making it than the bachelors. <laughs> but I think, I think there's one last possible limitation that we should touch on that our patients probably think is important and are going to ask you about it, which is how big is the risk of radiation with coronary CTAs? This is a good one to myth bust. Uh, yes, when first introduced, coronary CT did carry higher radiation risk, but most scans are now on the order of 2 to 3 millisieverts of radiation. To put that in perspective, nuclear scans are typically on the order of 10 to 12 millisieverts. All right, guys, let's, let's put this all together. So what I'm hearing is we probably can steer clear of coronary CTAs in patients with prior stents, because that's going to give us artifacts that we don't want. Patients with arrhythmias, uh, that's going to prevent us from getting those good quality images in diastole. Elderly patients, say patients greater than 75, that already have a lot of calcium built up or obese patients where the tissue density alters the image. Another group of patients to keep in mind are people who can't tolerate that splash, as Evan says, or (laughs) generous portion of beta blockade. And unlike Bachelor in Paradise, none of us live in a bubble. And we do have to remember that there is an unfortunate battle sometimes with insurance companies that might stand in the way of coronary CTAs, at least for the time being. All right, guys, I feel like I have a better grasp on what coronary CTAs are and their pros and cons, but I feel like interpretation of coronary CT results is new territory for me. What do I do with all that information I get from these tests? And more importantly, how am I going to talk to my patients about it? So just like anything else in medicine, there's not a straightforward answer. It's not going to be, if this coronary CTA result, then I do this. Everything has to be considered on a case-by-case basis. All right, but coronary CTA is an anatomical test, so these should be relatively straightforward to communicate, right? I mean, coronary disease is either there or it's not. Well, yes and no. Let's just start by tackling the extremes of what we might find on a coronary CTA with the help of Dr. Douglas. So first, there are the patients whose scans look great. If the CT angiogram shows no blockages at all and shows no plaque, I think it can be very reassuring to the patient that um, they do not have any blockages in their coronary arteries and that they are incredibly unlikely to have a heart attack um, 
due to plaque erosion or plaque rupture because they don't have any plaque. There is a 97 to 99% negative predictive value for a coronary CTA. So if a patient has chest pain, but clean arteries on a coronary CTA, you can assure them that their symptoms are probably not coming from their heart. We can't say the same thing, though, about functional stress testing. Stress test, you know, this is an approximation, but they're roughly 80% sensitive and 80% specific, which means that um, one that uh, one in five patients will have a false positive or a false negative diagnosis. Right? Wow. This rate is, is four out of five will be accurate. To me, the ability to reassure our patients, at least cardiac-wise, that they have no blockages on their CTA is the biggest advantage clinically. Some studies even suggest that a normal coronary CTA can confer up to seven-year warranty when it comes to mortality. You know, there are um, definitely uh, high-risk uh, groups in which a small number of people have no plaque, for example, in promise, 18% of diabetics had no plaque. I would still treat them for secondary prevention, as as the guidelines say, as they're diabetic. But um, uh, and it doesn't mean you know they can go out and smoke now or or whatever, eat bacon three three times a day. Um, uh, but I think it's very reassuring. The caveat here is that sensitivity for coronary CTA for things like spontaneous coronary artery dissection or Minoka, myocardial infarction in absence of obstructive coronary artery disease is still unclear. So this is an evolving area of study. Definitely important caveats to point out. All right, let's move from patients with low-risk coronary CTA results to patients on the other end of the spectrum, those with high-risk results. Here, we're talking about patients with greater than 70% blockages in their major vessels other than the left main and a greater than 50% blockage in the left main artery itself. Again, not a straightforward answer, but sometimes cath and PCI ends up being the best choice. Dr. Douglas told us about how she discusses this intervention with her patients. Say, well, your, your chest pain or your exertional symptoms seem to be due to blockage, which is limiting blood flow to the heart muscle. We want to open that up. I always tell them that that's a, a palliative procedure. It does not cure the disease. Um, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're not getting rid of the plaque. We're just pushing it out of the way or we're bypassing it. And that it's on them to work with us in cardiac rehab and in their, uh, lifestyle adjustments and with our medications, uh, over the rest of their life to keep this from becoming a problem for them. Let's pause for a second there because I just love the way Dr. Douglas frames this. Revascularization isn't a curative procedure. It's a palliative one. And I think that's important for a lot of us to remember that even after obstructive disease is intervened upon, there's still a lot of work left to do. Moving on, in between those patients with no blockages and those with significant plaque are those patients caught in the middle. Now again, we're talking about patients with intermediate blockages, less than 70% in the major vessels other than the left main, and in the left main, less than 50%. In these folks, there's no algorithm and it's always a case-by-case basis. Dr. Douglas speaks broad strokes about how she approaches patients with intermediate blockages. In general, for those people, I would do aggressive secondary prevention. They've demonstrated uh, that they do have atherosclerosis, even if it's not at this level of clinical coronary artery disease. Greg also gives us his take on knowing the nuanced information that a coronary CTA can give. Even if it's not obstructive, it might change the way that I manage their risk factors. It might give me a lower LDL goal. It might make me more eager to add on azetamibe or to up the dose of their statin. It might make me push them harder on prevention. 
and there are just like so many subtle things that happen in the interaction with a patient. If you show them a picture of a CTA and you say, look at all of your heart that is at risk if this plaque were to rupture, if this pimple were to pop, and you obstruct all of this flow. So I think it's very hard to capture in trials the subtleties of the one-on-one interaction. And also the way that you're framing it for yourself dictates how you talk about to the, how you talk about the disease to the patient. It changes the tone that you use. It changes the level of concern that you are uh, you're expressing. And I think that subconsciously knowing what someone's disease burden is like gives you a different sense of how you should be approaching them. And- wow, that is an awesome thought to end with. Let's wrap up this pearl by focusing on interpretation of coronary CTA. If your patient has a clean coronary CTA, then it's keep up the good work and gives them a reassurance up to a seven-year warranty. If they have coronary artery disease, then management is some mix of secondary prevention versus intervention. And as Dr. Douglas and Greg pointed out really nicely, is that anatomical testing can be a powerful motivator for behavior change and affects the patient-physician interaction in meaningful and measurable ways. And now from our peer reviewer, Dr. Ashita Davidi, cardiologist at NYU, gives us a recap of the pearls and adds her own insights. Pearl 1. Anatomical versus functional testing. Now think about anatomical testing, like looking at if there is plaque and how severe it is. On the other hand, functional testing tells you how hemodynamically significant the plaque is. Now, if a patient is having symptoms and you know there's obstructive plaque, you want to know if those symptoms are related to that obstructive plaque. And that's really what functional testing tells you. It tells you about sort of the hemodynamic significance of a plaque. So think about each telling you kind of like half the story. And when you put them together, it is the complete book, essentially. So who gets a calcium score? Just remember, it has to be an asymptomatic patient. Anyone with symptoms, you can't just rely on a calcium score. So first of all, asymptomatic patients who are low to intermediate risk, who you're really like, does this patient need to be on a statin? Does this patient not want to be on a statin? If the patient's fighting you a lot to be on a statin, you can get a calcium score, convince them that they have a plaque, and then maybe that'll convince them more to take the statin and prevent their plaque progression. The other thing about calcium scores is it's really in providing individualized care. Because when we look at calcium scores, we're not only looking at the absolute number, there's actually a MESA calculator that you can use to provide the percentile that the patient falls in, so really taking their demographics into account. And if they're above the 75th percentile, then they typically need a statin. The other great thing about calcium score is that it comes with a quote-unquote warranty period. Now, if you have a zero calcium score, there's papers that have shown that your cardiovascular mortality is similar to that of a normal population. And the warranty period is quoted to be about 15 years, which is a big deal to tell a patient, hey, you're fine. You're going to, you know, your cardiovascular risk is just like anybody else's. So that way, it's very reassuring for patients who may be anxious. The only thing to keep in mind is, you know, when do you repeat a calcium score? So if you have a positive calcium score, you never repeat it. Because if you have a positive calcium score, you're, what are you going to do? You're going to put the patient on a statin, right? And what do statins do to plaque? They solidify them. They make them hard and calcified and stable. 
think about soft, vulnerable plaque like a soft-boiled egg, and then a hard, stable plaque like a hard-boiled egg. So the whole point of putting a patient on a statin is converting that soft-boiled egg into a hard-boiled egg. So typically, their calcium score goes up when you put them on a statin. So if a patient has a positive calcium score, don't bother repeating it. Now, if they have a negative, a zero calcium score, like we talked about, the power of zero, you can consider repeating it every five years. You know, as patients age, their risk factors change and their risk changes with age as well. So you can consider repeating it every five years. Pearl three. The takeaway really is that, you know, coronary CT, think of it as an angiogram where you're not sitting inside the lumen, but you're sitting outside the heart and you're looking at the plaque, you're looking at the anatomy of the coronary arteries. And, you know, a picture is really worth a thousand words. If you show a patient a plaque in their coronary arteries, trust me, they're going to be a lot more motivated to change their lifestyle, stop smoking and take those statins we keep pestering them about. It also, you know, in young patients who are usually the ones that are more eligible for these coronary CTAs, you can also look at, well, do they have an anomalous coronary? Do they have a thick heart? Is their aorta okay? Do they have a, you know, a coarctation? You know, all these things can also cause chest pain. So you're not only looking at the coronaries, but you can also look at the cardiac structure. Now, taking it a step further, you know, we can, we also do stress testing in people with known coronary disease. And coronary CTAs are actually good at looking the cabbage in patients with cabbage who have grafts, looking at the anatomy and looking at the patency of the grafts. Pearl 4. So now we've harped on about coronary CTAs and how good they are, but they're not like an ideal test. There has to be the right test for the right patient like anything in medicine. So who are the people that are not ideal for these tests? So anyone who's had stents in the past, usually, you know, like with any hardware in your body, it creates a lot of artifact. The only caveat to that is a is a left main stent because they're usually pretty big and in asymptomatic patients because left main is kind of a big deal. We can consider, you know, imaging that in asymptomatic patients. The other thing is if your BMI is very high, the image quality again, even in your echoes, you know, the, the image quality is limited. So it's not an ideal test. In any patient who you think the calcium score is going to be way too high that, you know, it can cause, again, limited diagnostic accuracy like uh, end-stage renal disease patients or extremely, uh, you know, elderly patients like in their 80s or 90s, you're usually not likely to get very good images. And then the other caveat is also an irregular heartbeat. It can be a little more challenging to image these patients. It's not a contraindication but we'll just leave it at that at this point. Pearl 5. So now you have this amazing test called coronary CTA, and you got the results. So what do you do with it? So there's three main categories. One is it's it's completely clean. There's no plaque. You know, you're doing a great job. Just keep doing whatever you're doing and reassure the patient. Again, the warranty period is very helpful. The other end of the spectrum is, you know, there's an obstructive lesion and the patient is symptomatic. And then at that point, it's really a no-brainer that they need to go to the cath lab, get it further evaluated invasively. And if they need a PCI, then do that as well. Now, when you have sort of this intermediate, moderate lesion, sometimes, you know, you can also get reports that say cannot exclude obstructive lesion because of maybe calcium or whatever. At that point, it's really talking to your patients. What you want to see is, well, are there symptoms related to this obstructive plaque? So one, 
you can consider doing stress tests. You know, you can uh, put them on a treadmill, see if those same symptoms are reproduced when they exercise. If the patient would rather know if it's an obstructive plaque or not, you know, if it's one of your anxious patients, you can consider a coronary angiogram. And if it's a patient where less is more, you can consider starting them on a statin, an aspirin, beta blocker, anti-anginal therapies, um, and seeing if their symptoms improve or not. And, you know, it's a sort of uh, multiple options that you can take, and that's where shared decision-making comes in, really. Excellent. Thank you all for listening. Remember to claim your CME credit on the ACP website. It's easy to do. Just log on to www.acponline.org. Go to CME-MOC and under CME, click on podcast. Again, if you are in training, send this episode to an attending or someone else you think could benefit from this means of continuing medical education. And as always, if you enjoyed listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It does help people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We work really hard on these podcasts, so we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Let us know what we're doing right, how we can improve. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.